would take your Bibles, please, and turn to Habakkuk chapter 1. It's okay if you look at each other and you're not quite sure where Habakkuk is. <laughs> go to the end, go to Malachi, and then start working your way back, and you'll get there very soon. Uh, I told the first service that. I also told the first service, let me make a disclaimer before I begin. I just learned this week, I didn't know this, but it's actually pronounced Habakkuk. That's the correct pronunciation for this book. I'm not going to pronounce it correctly. I've always pronounced it Habakkuk growing up. So I'm acknowledging that I'm pronouncing it incorrectly, but I'll probably just kind of default into that pronunciation anyway. So um, anyway, who knew? Who knew I was pronouncing it wrong for so long? Um, The book of Habakkuk is primarily about the sovereignty of God. At least that'll be our focus this morning. God is sovereign over everything we believe. Uh, there'll be other main points. We're gonna, I'm going to take three weeks to preach through Habakkuk. We'll have other main points for the other two sermons, but really this morning it's about God is sovereign. Well, what does that really mean? <laughs> we believe that in our brains, or at least that's what the Bible tells us, but what does it mean that he's sovereign? Well, that's one of the questions I want us to answer here this morning. Let me read for us all of Habakkuk chapter 1. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help? And you will not hear, or cry to you violence, and you will not save. Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me, strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded. For I'm doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar and fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence. All their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, and they pile up earth and take it. They sweep like the wind and go on, guilty men whose own might is their God. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, O you, O rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up, the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet. So he rejoices and is glad. Therefore he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? I will take my stand at the watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer him concerning my complaint. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God will stand forever. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we ask that you would teach us from your word this morning. Would you give us understanding? Ultimately, Lord, that we would trust in you no matter what we see in our world, no matter what happens in our life, that we would trust in you alone. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.
John prayed for this in our pastoral prayer. But I imagine if you have been watching the news this week, you know that on Wednesday evening, a young man walked into a church in Charleston, South Carolina, and he sat down and, at least for a time, participated in a prayer meeting. But eventually, he pulled out a gun and he killed nine people. There's varying accounts exactly what he said while he was there, but most of them say that he stood over one of the persons that he had killed and said, I had to do it. Think about this. We've read the news reports. We've seen even the repentance and redemption that's even come from this. Why did this happen? Why? Why would someone do this? Why is there heinous evil and hatred in this world? And we try to offer up some answers, and ultimately Scripture tells us that mankind is sinful and depraved, and we understand that, but it doesn't answer all the questions that we have. We still, why would somebody do that? I thought we had begun to make progress with racial relations in our world, but now I'm not so sure after we see something like this. So there's so many questions that we have. I bet you asked a lot of them yourself. And you started to work through those questions. Maybe you came up with some answers, or maybe you just pushed some of those questions aside, but you got to the very bottom of it all. And there was one question that was waiting for you there. If God is sovereign over everything, and I believe the Bible says that he is, then that means he was sovereign over this situation in Charleston. And if he is, he had allowed it to happen. And if he did, why? Why would he let this happen? To his people, nonetheless. You even look around the world to Islamic extremists, to to ISIS, and they're butchering Christians in the Middle East. And why? Why does God let this happen? What do we mean when we say that God is sovereign over all things? If we believe that, then he's sovereign over these things. It's not absolving human, responsi- absolving human responsibility. Not let, I'm, not, I'm not letting people off the hook for what they did. People will be judged for what they did. But if God is sovereign, he is in control of this. John Curran, in his book, Why Do I Suffer? Suffering in the Sovereignty of God. He says, he defines the sovereignty of God this way. The doctrine of the sovereignty of God teaches that everything that occurs in heaven or on earth, from the greatest to the least, unfolds according to the purpose and plan of God. That is to say, whatsoever comes to pass, God has ordained it. R.C. Sproul, very famously, he's used this illustration in a number of his books, has what he calls the maverick molecule. He says, if there's even one molecule, just one, floating around somewhere in the universe outside of the direct control of God, just one molecule, then God ceases to be sovereign and therefore ceases to be God. Sproul says if we're going to call God sovereign, it must mean that he's completely sovereign over not just decisions and rules and kingdoms, even every molecule that's floating around. You know, I, I bet if we got a poll of every single Christian in the world and we asked them, do you believe in the sovereignty of God? I bet 99.9% of them would say, yes, I do believe in the sovereignty of God. So that really isn't a question. But when we would then, the follow-up question would be, what do you mean when you say, I believe in the sovereignty of God? Well, now we're going to get a wide variety of answers. Probably the most popular view of the sovereignty of God is that God is in control of all the good things in the world, but all the bad things in the world are, are underneath man's free will, or man chose to do this, or maybe karma or destiny, whatever we may want to call it. The representative example of this popular view is given by a Jewish rabbi named Harold Kushner. Maybe you've heard or even read his book, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. He says this, 
A drunken driver steers his car over the center line of the highway and collides with a green Chevrolet instead of the red Ford 50 feet away. An engine bolt breaks on flight 205 instead of flight 209, inflicting tragedy on one random group of families rather than another. There is no message in all of that, says Kushner. There's no reason for those particular people to be afflicted rather than others. They happen at random, and randomness is another name for chaos in those corners of the universe where God's creative light has not yet penetrated. And chaos is evil. It's not wrong, it's not malevolent, but it's evil nonetheless, because by causing tragedies at random, it prevents people from believing in God's goodness. See what Kushner's done here? All the good things in the world are controlled by God. All the bad things in in this world are controlled by this deity called chance and randomness and luck. Of course, we don't believe that's true. The car accident that I may or may not have on the way home from church today is not the result of, that was, man, that's unfortunate for Andy. That's too bad. It would be the direct result of the divine and sovereign hand of God. I wouldn't know why it would cause pain to the people that I love, but he was in control of that. It was as a result of his allowing it to be so. Kushner and many others cannot come to terms with the fact that perhaps God does have control over the things that we call evil and hurtful and painful. To summarize, Kushner thinks there is some other force out there causing bad in the world. Now, most of us, when we see this view of the sovereignty of God exposed like this, we do see its deficiencies. But perhaps some of us do attribute the bad things of life to being outside of the control of God and underneath the control of the free will of man. When something good happens to us, what do we often say? Well, that was such a God thing. He allowed that to happen in my life. Well, that's true. It was a God thing. He did allow that to happen. But he also allowed all the hurtful and painful and difficult times and discipline and the loss. Those were God things as well. And while I wholeheartedly agree with Dr. Curd's definition that whatsoever comes to pass is a direct result of the sovereignty of God, and I also agree with R.C. Sproul's illustration of the maverick molecule, even if we believe that, we still have some very hard questions we want answers to. That doesn't just, okay, we've solved it, now we can all go home. We have tough questions that are still left to be answered. Here's some questions that you may have. If God is sovereign, then why does the world currently seem so out of control? If God is sovereign, why is there so much pain and suffering and loss and anger and oppression? If God is sovereign, doesn't this doctrine reflect negatively on the character of God? If God is sovereign, does it it make God the author of sin and therefore evil for allowing it to happen? If God is sovereign, then how can he hold man responsible for his actions? And if God is sovereign over all things, including that which we call evil, then how can I call him good? This is hardly a cut and dry. In fact, we don't even get a resolution to this difficulty, to this hard question in this chapter. But this is exactly what Habakkuk is struggling with. He's answering a lot of the same questions. He looks out, he believes that God is sovereign, but the things he sees in his world, he finds it to then be inconsistent with God being sovereign in the world. We're the same. Habakkuk wrote this and had this prophecy 2,600 years ago, and he's asking the same questions that we ask today. There is nothing new under the sun. So what do we do? Where do we take these questions that we have? It's into this type of situation that Habakkuk gives us great encouragement, and he gives us some ways we ought to approach it. How do you deal with the sovereignty of God? 
How do you answer these difficult questions, and where do you turn for those answers? Here's my proposition. Because God is sovereign over all things, we should take great comfort despite our limited perspective and understanding. And let us rest in the fact that God is in control of all things and doing all things for his glory. So let's look at this passage in three ways. The first, in verses 1 through 4, it's our perspective. Habakkuk is going to, God, this is what I see, and this is how I'm interpreting it. So first, let's see what Habakkuk says. Habakkuk's living at a time when society was characterized by violence. Now keep in mind, this is God's people that are being violent. He's not talking about all the pagan nations out there being violent. He's saying, our people, God's people, we're violent, we've dismissed the law of God, we have no care, we're defaming his name. That's what Habakkuk is most concerned with. Habakkuk, just to give you a little bit of, of background, he's a contemporary of the prophet Jeremiah. Now, Jeremiah does most of his prophesying against the kings of Judah. You're doing bad stuff and God's going to punish you, O king of Judah. Habakkuk, on the other hand, is talking directly to God. He gives us a really a unique perspective. Habakkuk shows his zeal. He pours out his heart to God in prayer for understanding. He's bold, but he's never really disrespectful. He's emotional, but he doesn't seem to be out of control. He's truly searching answers from God. And he seems most concerned about the offenses against God that he sees. But in all of this, he doesn't pull away. He doesn't pull away from God. He draws near. So he begins, How long, O Lord? How long shall I cry for help and you not hear? David offers a similar question in his lament in Psalm chapter 13, which we read and sung from already this morning. How long? In other words, God, I've got limits here. I can't take much more of this. This is excruciating. How long is this going to last? And he says more. Why? I need answers, God. I can't make, I don't, this isn't making any sense to me. Can you help? Now, we don't know exactly what was taking place in Judah at this time, but I'm sure we could, we could make some good guesses and get pretty close. Habakkuk's main complaint was violence. There's violence going on. The Hebrew word there is Hamas. There's violence everywhere. What do we do with it? In verse 4, it says, So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. It literally reads, The law has been made numb. It has no power. The bite and the authority has been taken out of it. All the religious and civil leaders have become, become corrupt. Justice is not being served. It's not going out. The law of God, it's either being rejected or misapplied. The righteous have become timid because the wicked are powerful. So what do we do with all this? Do you look around the world and does it trouble you at what you see? Does the immorality of the world bother you, the disregard and disrespect for God and his law? Are you troubled at what you see? Do you eventually get to the bottom, as I suggested at the beginning, that, God, where are you in this? It's not that we take away man's responsibility. As I mentioned, man is responsible for his sins. He will have to answer for those things. But God is in, ultimately in control. Doesn't he want these things to stop? Habakkuk is complaining in verses 1 through 4. But it doesn't matter how difficult our questions are because we ask a lot of the same. He continually goes back to God. God can take your complaints. He can take your tough questions. But you better be ready for his response. Habakkuk cries out, but now he receives God's perspective in point number two. Verses 5 through 11, God responds to Habakkuk. 
David Pryor, in his commentary on this passage, says, As the dialogue proceeded, Habakkuk began to wonder whether he had been wise to raise such huge issues to God. As God begins to answer him, Habakkuk realizes that he's walked into something so much bigger, so far above his abilities, and with, so, with far more implications than he ever dared to consider. His burden is not lightened. In some ways, it's made heavier. God responds with great force to Habakkuk. He responds with clarity. He begins in verse, excuse me, he begins in verse 5 with four, I learned this as I was studying this passage, he, he gives him four Hebrew imperatives. And each one of these imperatives are in the plural. So he's not just speaking to Habakkuk, he's speaking to the whole nation of Judah. First of all, he says, look. In other words, Habakkuk, raise your, raise your head and look and see. Don't bury your head in the sand. I want you to see what's going on, not in your immediate context, but what's going on around the world. Take a look. Secondly, he says, I want you to see. This isn't the same command. It's, it's almost, it's kind of, I want you to see, I want you to understand. I want you to drink it in. I want you to diagnose it and examine it. Don't miss what you see. And the result of this looking and seeing will lead to his second two imperatives, to wonder and to be astounded. You're going to be shocked, Habakkuk, at what you see. But he leaves, or he ends uh, verse 5 with some encouragement. I'm doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. Habakkuk just gets done questioning God. What are you really working? Do you care? Do you see what's going on? And God gives him an, an emphatic, yes, I do see. Yes, I am working. Habakkuk accuses God of being idle and uncaring, and that's false. And really, a, an admonition for us is we often just get so zeroed in on what's going on in our world that we don't look up, look up around the world to see. God's doing wonderful things in our nation as well, but we look up and look around the world. It's why, let me, eight months in advance, let me give a plug for our missions conference. It's why it's so beneficial. February 19th through the 21st of 2016, come to the missions conference. So we can look up and see what's going on around our world. The Lord's doing amazing things. We, just, we get to think the church is only First Pres and Macon, Georgia. No, there's Christians worshiping all around the world that we need to hear their testimonies. Here's one such example. In 1970, by most estimations, the nation of China was 0.1% Christian. And by most estimations, by 2020, it will be 10.6% Christian an increase of some 100 million Christians. And by the way, China is officially an atheist state. We can't always see what's going on. We, can't, we get so focused on us, we need to look up and to see. We may be encouraged when we look around the world at the way the church is spreading. Habakkuk would not have been encouraged when he looked up and he saw. In verse 6, it says that the Chaldeans are coming. That was just another name for the Babylonians. They're on their way, and they're bringing judgment. They're coming to bring torment, really, to the people of God. Habakkuk's understanding is too short-sighted. It, God's not just at work amongst his people. He's at work amongst other peoples as well. And he's bringing the hand of judgment through the Babylonians. But the Babylonians aren't doing anything outside of the direct control of God. It's not like God's going to turn his back for a minute. The Babylonians are going to come in and attack God's people. God is giving permission for this to happen. God responds to Habakkuk. <laughs> Habakkuk, I know you were hoping that things were going to get better, but they're going to get worse. I, ha I do know what's going on. I do see the violence, and I'm bringing judgment. 
Verses 7 through 11 are really just an explanation or a description, rather, of the ruthlessness of the Babylonians. It's a description of their might. They're fast and aggressive. Terror goes out before them. They do whatever they want. They're a law to themselves. They bring judgment and discipline. They're an authority. It says they gather captives like sand. Their might is their God. But God also makes it very clear that they're guilty. That it's not, their, it's not they're, going, they're not getting away with something. They are guilty. They will be called into account for what they are doing. And we take great comfort in God's word. Again, at the end of verse 5, I'm doing a work in your day that you would not believe if told. In other words, it may not seem like it, Habakkuk, that I'm doing anything, but I am. I am doing something. Daniel Webster Whittle, he was a major in the Union Army during the Civil War. He would later be called as a, a preacher of the gospel. He became a Christian during the Civil War. He writes that when the Civil War broke out, he left his home in New England and became a part of a Massachusetts regiment. His dear mother was a devout Christian, and upon his leaving, he left with her giving him many tears and many prayers. Before he left, she slipped a copy of the New Testament into his bag. He was involved in many engagements in the Civil War. Eventually, he had his arm severely hurt and had it amputated above the elbow. He was laying in an infirmary, and finally he reached into that bag and he pulled out that New Testament that had been in there for months. And he began to read it. Started in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and all the way through Revelation. He said he would finish Revelation, and then he'd start right back over again. (laughs) He says, every part of it was interesting to me, and I found to my surprise I could understand it in a way that I'd never had before. But as I began to read, and with continued interest, I still had no thought of becoming a Christian, and I did not understand the way of salvation although I read of it. And while in this state of mind, yet with no purpose to repent or accept my Savior, I was awakened one night by a nurse who said to me, there's a boy at the other end of the ward and he wants someone to pray with him. I can't do it. I'm a wicked man. I can't pray. Will you come and pray with this boy? And Whittle looked back at the nurse and said, I can't pray with him either. I'm just as wicked as you claim that you are. And the nurse said, what do you mean? I see you're reading your your New Testament every single day. You must be a praying man. And I've never heard you curse. What shall I do? There's no one else for me to go to. Please come and pray with this boy. And so Whittle, moved by this appeal, he arose from his cot. He went to the far corner where this fair-haired boy of 17 or 18 was laying. And he was dying. There was a look of intense agony on his face. And as their eyes met, the boy said, Oh, pray for me. Please pray for me. I'm dying. I was a good boy at home in Maine. My mother and father took me to church. I went to Sunday school. But since becoming a soldier, I have learned wicked ways. Would you please pray for me? I'm dying. I'm not fit to die. Ask God to forgive me. Please ask Christ to save me. So Whittle got down on his knees with this young boy. They they grasped hands and they began to pray. And when Whittle got up from his knees, the boy had died. Yet Whittle believed he had his attention fixed on Christ when he died and that he had trusted his Savior. And so Whittle then got down on his knees by himself and he prayed that Jesus Christ would save him. And over the years, Whittle as a preacher was overheard telling his testimony and he would say, I was the second person that I led to Christ. How little we see of the providence of God. We just don't understand his ways. We don't see all the things that he's doing. It may seem like nothing and that he doesn't hear, but he's doing wonderful things that we don't recognize. God is far greater and wiser than we are. Yes, his ways are difficult to grasp, and he seems unresponsive at times. 
But God is revealing to Habakkuk that judgment and discipline are coming, but he does give instruction, and we'll see that in chapter 2. We must confess that we are so beneath God and his ways, we cannot always understand. We, we say what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. We know that God is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. We have limitations. He does not. You know, the sovereignty of God is a huge topic. Harley can really be handled adequately in one sermon. There's so many intricate details. There's so many questions that we would like to have answers to. So we must approach it with patience and humility. But we've got to move forward. We see our perspective. We see God's, but we're still limited and finite. We still struggle through these things. So how, what is the way forward? Our final point, verses 12 through 17. God's response to Habakkuk, it's difficult to say if it really made him feel any better. God reveals a far more frightening reality than Habakkuk had even known before he started this dialogue. He does believe that God's in control. Just, just as he professes that, he goes right back into his list of questions of why. But every step of the way, don't miss this, he's running back to God. I don't understand God, I need answers. He's always and continually praying to him for, for understanding and comfort. Why aren't you going to do anything about this, God? Are you really going to bring the Babylonians as your instrument of judgment? They're these horrible, wicked people. How are you going to use them onto the righteous of the Judeans? Of course, the Judeans weren't righteous or perfect, but by comparison, I suppose they were. This first chapter of Habakkuk raises some excellent questions for us to gra grapple with and struggle with. Even devout and Christians, for many, many years, you still struggle sometimes with these, or maybe you, maybe you don't think about these things. Maybe I'm raising some things in your mind that you haven't considered before. But the problem of evil in this world is hard. In fact, most polls, when people are asked, those that don't believe in Christ, when they're asked why they don't, the problem of evil and suffering is often at the top of the list. I can't believe in God because I see evil and suffering going on in this world, and I can't believe in a God that will allow that to happen, so they then find disbelief or atheism to be the most plausible. Have you ever considered that? To many people's minds, the existence of evil makes believing in God implausible because they don't think God would set up his world this way. How do we understand it then? Does this make God the author of evil and suffering and I got to question his character and goodness? Well, you really only have two choices. <laughs> Yeah, there may be more, but if you really distill both of them down, you have two choices when facing this question. You can say that God isn't sovereign and that the pain and sin and evil in this world is outside of his control and he either chooses to not do anything about it, making him evil, or he can't do anything about it, making him impotent. He would like to stop it, but he's so committed to the free will of man that he doesn't. Or your second choice is that he is sovereign over all things. He's in complete control. There isn't one molecule that's roaming around outside of his influence. Yes, this would make us to believe that he's the author of evil and therefore not completely good. However, consider this. Just because you cannot imagine a reason that God would allow something to happen, does that mean he can't have one? How often has the will of God in your life, just thinking of your own life, been clear only in hindsight? Mitch Stokes wrote a great book uh, on apologetics called A Shot of Faith to the Head. Now, there's a great book title right there, A Shot of Faith to the Head. He answers this particular issue. This shows you how powerful the problem of evil is to many people. In fact, 
It's more than an intellectual problem, it's an emotional problem as well, predicated on our natural and powerful revulsion to evil and suffering. But what exactly is the problem here, he asks. Of course the existence of evil and suffering creates problems for humans, for example, the practical problem of avoiding and mitigating the evil that we and others experience, but that's not what's in view here. The problem here is that a perfectly good, all-knowing, all-powerful God wouldn't allow the suffering of his creatures, and yet there is such suffering. Therefore, as the logic goes, there is no God. Is this really a defeater of belief for our view of God? The bottom line, as I've said, the existence of evil makes the existence of God impossible. However, as Stokes concludes, the question that's never then asked of the atheist, can you offer a plausible case that God would not allow evil and suffering in this world? Have you ever asked an atheist that in return? They always want to have reasons for everything that they believe. Well, can you offer me a plausible reason that God wouldn't allow what happened in Charleston? What Stokes is arguing, and Tim Keller argues this as well in his book, The Reason for God, if you have a God that's big and powerful enough, okay, if you really believe he's this big and powerful, that you can be mad at him for not stopping something from happening, doesn't he at the same time have to be wise enough for letting something to continue that you can't understand or know about? Does that make sense? If he's big and powerful enough that you're mad at him for letting something continue, doesn't he have to be wise enough for letting it? that you can't grasp in your limitations. And when man acts sinfully, he intends to act sinfully. Can we apply the same to God? During the late 17th century, there was great persecutions that befell the Presbyterians of Scotland. Many of these were called the Covenanters. They were put to death because of their stand on grace in the church. And for his Covenanter views, a man by the name of Alan Cameron was placed in prison. And one day, the guards threw a sack into his cell. It contained a severed head and hands. And the guards began to taunt Cameron. Do you know who, these, who this is? Do you know who this head and these hands belong to? Who is it? Cameron looked up and he responded. He said, I know these. I know them well. They're my dear sons. So Cameron looked back at the guards and he said, This is the will of the Lord, for he is good to me. He cannot do me wrong, but has made goodness and mercy to follow me all the days of my life. How could the people who had suffered the loss of loved ones in Charleston this week look at a television screen where the man that had murdered their loved ones and offer him forgiveness? They forgave him. How could Alan Cameron respond to the people who had murdered his son in this way? How could they say this? We read of these stories and we're overwhelmed at the forgiveness, but the question still remains, why did God let that happen? Does he not care? Does he not care for his people? Yes, he does. You see, we don't like this particular passage of Scripture because we don't, it's not tied up in a neat little bow at the very end. We have a clear verdict and a clear end point to it. We're still left with the question, what do we do in the midst of these situations? How do we go forward? Do you believe that God is sovereign over everything? Because if it's true, we can be comforted that he's in control, and it's not some divine force out there like fate and karma or destiny that many in our culture believe. We're governed and we're led by a friend, by Jesus Christ. And we might not understand the reason he does everything, but he is in control. And isn't that really the essence of our faith? We don't understand it all. But we trust him because we know his promises. We know what he's done many times before in many other situations. 
Tim Keller says also in his book, The Reason for God, Christianity does not provide the reason for each experience of pain. It never promises to. But it does provide deep resources for actually facing suffering with hope and courage rather than bitterness and despair. Christianity doesn't promise an answer to all the why questions that we have, but it does give us resources for dealing with those things. We don't have to be afraid or anxious. You know, I don't know why God has allowed any number of things to happen in this world. I don't have answers for that. I don't know why he's allowed any number of things to happen in your life. I certainly don't know why he's allowed a number of things to happen in my own life. I have a lot of the same questions that you do. But I can say with great confidence what the answer isn't. The answer to the why questions is absolutely not that he does not care or that he doesn't see. I can say that. I know he does, he's not indifferent to our plight. The reason I can say that is because I know we have the cross. That's the ultimate example that he does care. He is interested in the pain and suffering. The people that have done these things will be brought to account. They will be judged for what they've done. But by the same token, if we trust in him, all that we have done will be wiped clean and we'll have the perfect record of Christ. He's coming again to make all things new. Everything is new. Every tear is wiped away. Everything will be as it should, perfect. Because Christ had a great injustice done to him, but it was for our benefit and for our salvation. If you're here this morning and you're a skeptic, you don't care about Christ, you think this stuff is silly, I'm confessing to you that we don't have an answer for every single thing that happens in the world. I can't, can't offer that. Christianity doesn't promise an answer to all the why questions, but it gives you resources that no other worldview gives you. You can have great hope in the midst of that. You have a God that says, I do care, and I'm going to come get in this mess with you, and I'm going to pay for the penalty of sin, wiping it away and making you perfect and righteous. The cross shows us that God does love and he does care. For the Christian, you need to be reminded of this. We always need to be reminded of this, that he's in control over everything. I imagine that everybody in here this morning needed to be reminded of the sovereignty of God for one reason or another. Cling tighter to your sovereign God. Have faith in him. Take hold of his mercy and grace. Our God is sovereign. Trust in him. He is in heaven and he does all that he pleases. And that is good. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we are thankful that you are in heaven and you are doing all that you please. You do things for your glory, you do things for our good, and while we cannot always understand it, we are limited. We only see things in time and space now. You see it all at once. We would trust in you, we would believe in your love and goodness for us, and would you make us ever confident of that? It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.